Okay, so we are going to continue our uh, Sunday sermon sessions in the Gospel of John. And we are found in chapter 11. And the portion of scriptures moving forward will be found in verse, I believe, 28 and following. We'll see how far we can go. As it stands, we've been um, reading and understanding the ministry of our Lord and Master and who He is as a human being, Jesus on earth, but yet God among mankind and the purpose in which He came among us to the fulfillment of the prophets and the plan of redemption from the very beginning. And we see how he is interacting with his uh, people and those who uh, come in contact with him and those in whom he seeks, uh, seeks out. We've seen our Lord and Master and his power and his will and his authority and the way he speaks and the things he teaches. And we've seen him confirm uh, also through the supernatural activities he can provide uh, and make active in the purpose of his ministry to be fulfilled. A man on earth who can control the weather, cast out demons, make whole the lame, cure the sick, raise the dead, see within the inner thoughts of man in a way no other can, uh, God on earth. Communication with mankind, God on earth. And what a powerful thing it has been through the penmanship of the Holy Spirit, John the Vessel, the Gospel writer, and uh, seeing these accounts, these witnessed and recorded accounts of our Lord and Master, our King and Savior. And we see, and have seen thus far, in these accounts, sadly, a growing hostility from the religious leaders of the day, the Sanhedrin, which is, of, cor of course, the components found together in the sociopolitical realm of their day, first century Palestine, the way of Judaism, and the traditions in which they held in regards to the chief priests, the elders, the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees and uh, how they were always in argument against each other, yet for this cause here, they find themselves with a mutual enemy, quote-unquote enemy, the Christ. And we see through the recorded accounts of the gospel how they grow hostile towards him, and they blaspheme, and they slander, and they accuse, and they ultimately want to bring him to his death. They want him removed and uh, murder is the path they choose. And of course, that is in accordance to as Christ had revealed to their paternal source, which is the devil, a murderer and a liar from the very beginning. And they seek to do their father's bidding in removing Christ from this earth. However, they are blind to see what you and I, with tender and humble heart, and all those of that century who were humble and tender of heart to see that this man came to bring a message quite powerful, a message of repentance and change, a message in which redemption could be made available through him, and how those who received his compassion were so thankful to him. And we see also how the foreigner 
was more so receptive of the Christ than his own people, the Jews, to which the gospel came first, mind you, for the Jews had the law, and they were blessed with the law, and they should have known the Messiah. But they had since adapted through their traditions and selfish gain, their selfish pursuits and the fleshly desires of their ways, that the Christ had now taken a different image in their minds, no longer the scriptural image, but an image in which they wanted him to be. And when Christ walked among us and was not the image they had since created, there was a conflict, wasn't there? And they sought to remove this man and anticipate their quote-unquote image of who the Messiah should be to come. And that is indeed a sad uh, witness to the account of mankind and how rebellious his heart can come that he would even neglect a man that could raise the dead before him. Uh, but such is the way of sin, lawlessness, delusion, blinds our thoughts into all sorts of myth and uh, selfish, prideful uh, uh, positions. Uh, but Christ came to set people free from that. And uh, we've been uh, reading these accounts. And within the immediate context of this chapter, we've seen, of course, within uh, 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 the context of a man uh, to be raised from the dead. The death and resurrection of Lazarus. Powerful thing, indeed. And we had read from verses 1 through verse 27. And within that, we uh, spoke about, of course, darkness and light, right? And how Christ is indeed the light that can take one away from death and graft him or her within the path to eternal living, and from that context, we will enter verse 28 and forward and see what the Holy Spirit writes. Verse 28, chapter 11, the Gospel of John. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary her sister. Now going back to verse 27 for the immediate context again. She said to him, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. Because we know from the uh, uh, words Christ spoke in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? This, of course, in regards to Lazarus, whom he loved, and his sisters, that household, and their desperation and their deep sorrow and lament in regards to their brother who is now passed. He is deceased. He is uh, no longer uh, holding his spirit. So verse 28, when she, when, when she said, had said this, he, uh, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, in verse 29, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now, in this, of course, time and age, we would find uh, uh, um, hired hands to participate in playing the flute and also in lamentation, in, in, in deep outward expressions of, of sorrow. Uh, it would be a wailing, right? It was, it was encouraged, it was promoted, and it was part of their cultural uh, uh, people to openly and outwardly have that very strong wailing so the whole community would see this very sorrowful moment. So uh, when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to Jesus because she had uh, secretly been told uh, that he was 
at the gate. And of course, she wants to go see. So when Jesus, uh, verse 30, now Jesus had not yet come into the village, right? But was still in the place where Martha uh, met him. He's found there. Then the Jews, verse 31, and here when it says the Jews, you have to understand the context. In context, it will tell you if it is the Jews who are hostile towards the Christ or the Jews who are not necessarily hostile towards the Christ. Here, the Jews were participating in this sorrow uh, in which uh, the passing of Lazarus had taken place. So the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. See, they want to minister to her. They want to be there for her. And she received something that was secret. And then she gets up and leaves. Well, where is she going? So they're going to follow her. They want to make sure that she is ministered to. In verse 32, therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She, of course, revealing her faith, revealing words that express what is found within, and they are honest, aren't they? They are innocent and pure. They are true. And it is, of course, rightly handled in great interest with verse 21 of the same chapter where we find her sister Martha say the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So they, they knew Christ and the authority he had even over death. And they had great love for him in his uniqueness. So Mary now, both Mary and Martha, have understood and have their faith revealed to him in the words they speak and the actions they practice. And so when Jesus therefore saw her weeping in verse 33, and the Jews who came with her also weeping, uh, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. You know, God on earth, right? He had to allow himself to experience humanity. He had to allow himself to experience hunger and temptation, pain and sorrow. And he had to allow himself to experience what we experience in regards to losing a loved one. And... He was deeply moved with the situation. I mean, I've gone to funerals of individuals who I was not close to particularly, and I've gone to funerals to individuals I was very, very close to and loved deeply and still do. You get teary-eyed. It doesn't matter, right? You, you go to a funeral... You can watch a funeral uh, from a distance that has nothing to do with you, and you will see the sorrow in the faces of the people. You will become sorrowful. You will, because it's, the, it's a human connection. It's a human emotion that when you see someone in 
in true and genuine pain, you connect with that pain because we all have to go through it. The great equalizer, right? And it would, it would be understandable that Jesus, man, a man walking on this earth, seeing that, and of course a context in which he loved them, seeing the crowd and all in such deep sorrow and weeping that he would indeed be troubled in his heart, that it would have moved him that way. Now these, of course, were doing so with great lamentation and wailing. He was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled. Now, this, of course, is not with the Holy Spirit. This is not at all what is being said here. It's not with the Holy Spirit. It is indeed within himself and the thoughts of his mind that he allows himself to experience. Okay? It was troubled. And he said in verse 34, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. All right. And then verse 35, Jesus wept. Um, we commonly say this is the smallest verse in the Bible, but if you look at the Greek, it isn't. The shortest verse in the Bible, according to the Greek, would be found in Thessalonians, where it says something like, pray continuously, I think, or something like that. Yeah. Nonetheless, it is indeed a powerful verse, isn't it? Jesus wept. And he did not do so, of course, in the understanding and the idea of the original language. He did not do so in the way they were doing so, which was ah, like a very loud display of pain. Uh, he was more so inwardly, more so inwardly, but yet still with the same hurt inside. More so controlled, I suppose. So, verse 36, the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. So through his weeping, a controlled weeping, not an outward, out, uh, not an outwardly expressing a lack of control with, with, with weeping, and which is, you know, I mean, when you minister to people who are hurt that way, you have to expect that they're going to say things and do things that might not be normal according to their character. Why? Because they're, they're caught in such deep sorrow, you know? Uh, when you're caught in such a deep sorrow at times, you say things, think things, and do things that you would normally not do. Why? Because you're no longer sober. You're, you're captivated by the sorrow that takes a hold of you. Uh, again, and that a bit of an excursion, but we have to be mindful about the word sober in the Bible. It's not just the obvious, you know, from drugs and alcohol and that kind of stuff. But it is also from everything, from false religious views and from deep sorrow that can cause us to retaliate, be bitter, cause revenge, or do things that we, we, we would not do uh, under a sober thought. Um, deep sorrow and the loss of loved one can bring that upon us if we are not deeply rooted in Christ. Uh, but anyways, a bit of an excursion there. To the text again, Jesus wept, so the Jews were saying, see how he loved him. But some of them said, verse 37, could not, the, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? We've seen his, we've seen his, his power. Why is he here now? If he would have come sooner, he could have taken care of this, couldn't he? Uh, 
Uh, but again, as we learned last week, Christ is in control of this situation. He utilized this situation for the glory of God. To God to be, uh, for God is to be uh, uh, glorified. So some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus, in verse 38, again being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. So here is the Christ found in a location where the, the, the uh, is it impure or unpure? I forget. Un let's, just, let's just call it unpure. Uh, uh, decay, right? Death is not pure. And the tomb is a location in which uh, what is not pure is typically confined and held. And here is the vessel of life, the Christ, who has the power to bring back, uh, the power to, to return. And it is indeed uh, revealing how the power of Christ supersedes the power of darkness, the power of death. And that is the point, of course. We saw the Christ speak of being the bread of life. He is our nourishment. He is our spiritual nourishment. We've seen the Christ speak of the, being the light of the world. He is our lamplight. That allows us to see straight, right? If he nourishes our body, what good would our body be? Nourished, but yet blind and can't see ahead of us. He not only sustains our spiritual body with his word, but he is also the light which gives us path in the narrow path forward. And now he is the resurrection. He can bring us back from the dead and he is found in a location where a man whom he loved had passed. So the Jews were saying, see how he loved them. Okay, verse 37, verse 38. So Jesus again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb. Now it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. Uh, sometimes it was just a cave. It could have been a cave that was took place naturally through erosion or, or, or movements. Uh, at times it was uh, dug, you know, uh, um, for the purpose of putting a body in there, depending on your financial blessings. So Jesus, uh, uh, in verse 38, does that. Verse 39, Jesus says, remove the stone, right? There's a stone there. And uh, Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord... By this time, there'll be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Uh, there's some concern there and some valid concern, right? I ain't going to smell nice, you know, out there in the heat. Been dead for four days. I mean, have you ever... We've gone in the woods. We've walked at the park. If there's a dead animal that's been dead for a while, whew, you're like, you can smell the carcass. Uh, I was out several months ago when we were taking a drive in the, in the backwoods, if you will, and there was a dead carcass of a moose. Well, let me tell you, that stunk a half hour away from reaching it. We're like, what smells? And it kept getting stronger and stronger. And then you see it, you're like, ugh. Well, a dead body has a unique smell, and it's it can be very, uh, that's why uh, morticians, I think it is the right name, they'll, they'll put a, a kind of a, a solution under their nose, like something strong, 
uh, you know, uh, for that purpose. I mean, what's the point? Well, he, he's been dead. This is not just he was sick and he's not feeling well. This is not his heart stopped beating for three minutes on the operating table. This is a man whose spirit has departed from his body for f it's four days now. He, it's not going to smell nice at all. And the people are truly concerned, and they rightfully so. They understand also the contamination of the impurity of a dead a body. So they say, of course, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. You know, when we're dead in our sins, we don't smell too well, do we? <laughs> All right? <laughs> Sometimes you can even see it on someone. Wow, look at the walking dead. That's why we, a.k.a., say the zombies out there. Uh, the walking dead, you can see. Sometimes you bump into people you've not seen in a long time, and you can see the sin that has aged them that has uh taken away their innocence their, their 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 life their vibrancy you know they're just you can see it it's just so their countenance is so fallen uh the damage of sin it, it, it smells it stinks if you will in, in a spiritual sense of course um but that is uh the the end result of sin it, it's death but christ of course and his power is teaching these people something quite profound is he not so He's been dead for four days. So Jesus says to her in verse 40, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? You're talking about he's been dead four days and he smells. I'm bringing it back to the statement I've said in verse 25 and 26. If you believe that I am the resurrection and the life, and you've seen me raise it, you've seen the powers I have, don't you believe that who I am, I am? Verse 4, again, the purpose of this to take place, he had said so. That God may be glorified by it. And in verse 25 and 26, he brings to them uh, the accountability of their free will. Do you believe or do you not believe? It doesn't matter how long you've been dead in sin. It doesn't matter if you've been dead in sin for so long, you start to decay and smell. It doesn't matter if you're 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90. If you're walking on this earth and you are a uh, sons or children of the grave, you need not remain children of the grave. You now have the opportunity to, through your free will to become children of of the resurrection, right? Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone, verse 41. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew, verse 42, that you always hear me. But because of the people Standing around, I said it, so that they may believe that you sent me. This is for the benefit of mankind. The Son is one with the Father. He has said so. He has defended his position. That's why they want to get rid of him. Well, one of the reasons why they want to get rid of him, because he's genuine, he's authentic, he's the real deal, and they don't like that very much. So when he had said these things in verse 43, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. 
or come forth. And the man who had died, been dead four days, he came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to, to them, Unbind him and let him go. Fascinating, isn't it? One miracle recognized. What is that? Life came back within this dead body four days after the fact. What's the other one? Well, how does one who is laid there, bound, hand and foot, with every, wrapped around, how is he now standing there before them? Well, it's miraculous, of course. It's supernatural. It's a great power of God. Come forth. There he is. He's forth. And it is commonly said by a great many, of course, he had to, with specificity, name Lazarus. Because if he would have just said, come forth, then all the dead would have come forth. That's the power of God. He had to specify the name. The man who had died came forth bound, hand and foot, with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, Unbind him, let, and let him go. Now therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done, well, they believed him. You see, some did. Now, it may not have been as deep as the ones who believed in him because of his words, they may have believed in him at this time because they saw a dead man four days walk again. Nonetheless, it's faith, and they believed. And we can't have that without verse 46, correct? Because they're always around. But some of them, who? The Jews, went where? To the Pharisees. And told them the things which Jesus had done. And this, the idea of the original language is, of course, not they're 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 not they're not doing so because they're so happy. They're doing so because, well, they need to report to the head tyrants in charge. They are loyalists and subordinates to their socio-political submission, which is to the Pharisees. Pharisees need to know about this. They have to report everything to the Pharisees. They can't think for themselves, you see. That's how that works. Can't think for themselves. They have no independent mind. They must always report back to the head tyrants, the oppressors, who aren't going to like this at all, obviously. And so they do that. Therefore, in verse 47, the chief priest and the Pharisees convened a council. Now remember, they also were quick to run to the Pharisees because it was well known that the Pharisees wanted to apprehend Jesus and get rid of him. Jesus came to tell the people, you don't need the Pharisees, you just need me. And through me, you can make your way to the Father because there's no other authority walking on this earth in which you can make it to the Father. And they, of course, are corrupted and they are corrupted by their own pride and self-righteous hypocrisy. And they know they are losing control of the people. And so they have those whom they have devoured run to them and report everything. 
we know how that operates. They do the same thing today. That same uh, very evil uh, work is uh, creeps into the church unnoticed a great many times and causes all that kind of nonsense as well. And I find it interesting also. Uh, well, we'll save that one. We'll move on. If we let that, if we let him go, they, they say, of course. Well, let's start back with verse forty-seven. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, "What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs." The idea, of course, behind the language is, "Well, whatever we've been doing hasn't been working. So what's up? What 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 what, what do we have to do? I mean, what we've been trying isn't working. If we let him go on like this, verse forty-eight. All men will believe in him. And the Romans will come down, take away both our place and our nation. Oh, now we know what's going on, don't we? They don't want to lose their chief seats. And they don't want to lose control over the people. Because if they lose control over the people, they won't receive their praise. And if they don't receive their praise, they don't get to their wallet. And that ultimately is the deviated heart, the delinquency of their character. They are self-righteous hypocrites and very greedy. They don't want to lose their power, their control, which was allowed to them by the Romans. See, the Romans, they were so blind to it, they were under submission to the Roman rule. And here they are, worried that they're going to lose their privileges, which give them the control over the Jews. But one of them, in verse 49, Caiaphas who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, friends, do not be fooled. Caiaphas is not a friend of the Christ. Why is he saying what he is saying? This is what he is saying. It's better that Jesus dies and that we remain in power and in control. What we're doing isn't working. You're right, it isn't. Let's murder the man. This would not have been an official meeting either. Nor a righteous one. Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. <laughs> Let's think about that again for a minute. Here is the enemies of Christ. They want to murder him. They want to get rid of him. It's better he die anyway so that we keep our privileges. And look at how he words it, right? In his own mind, he is unaware... That, yeah, it is better that Christ die. You know why? Because Christ has to die for us to be liberated from our sins. It's just, it's so sad how blind they are. They see it, but through the wrong motive of the heart. He's speaking the truth, but he's too blind to see it from the right motive of the heart. He is right. It is better that Christ die than not die, because if Christ don't die, we don't get to be saved. His people would have been saved through his sacrifice on the cross, but they see it the other way. We want Christ to die. It's better that one man die, and we get to keep our control over the people. Then he not die, and then we lose all our control because the Romans will take it away from us. 
Again, that's a testament to how they had created the Christ in their own image. Who was supposed to be a political figure and slay down the Romans and build a, a, a physical, man-made kingdom. No, no, no. Nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this of his own initiative, verse 51, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. Now, this, of course, is through the context and perspective of John's penmanship. Remember, John, the gospel writer, is the one writing the account of this uh, 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 portion of Scripture, if you will. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Speaking, of course, of the Gentile. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him, to murder him. You see, John's pen writes the truth of the prophecy, but through their darkened hearts, they're seeking to murder him to keep their control. But through pen, John's penmanship, though, the Holy Spirit, it still reveals the fact that they're blind to what it is they, he even said. So therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews in verse 54. And from this account moving forward, you'll see less of the Pharisees and more of the chief priests because the chief priests were in the control of the temple. The Pharisees were more so with the people in regards to the synagogues. And again, these two don't get along. They do not get along. You're talking about Sadducees and Pharisees. They do not get along. But they do now for this one purpose, to get rid of Jesus. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews. He's always in control of when he is going to depart this earth, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near. And I think this here speaking of the third one in this gospel account. And many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. Remember, there is a process. There is law to abide by in regards to the Old Testament system in which they had to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus in verse 56 and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priest in verse 57 and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. Eleven chapters thus far, what have we been seeing? This same thing. At the beginning, they were kind of curious. And then when they saw that he, Jesus was not going through them, they became hostile towards him. But yet, all through these chapters, these accounts, Jesus still remains intact and in control and producing what is good and right among those who are seeking him. Interesting indeed. Interesting indeed. Okay, well, that'll conclude uh, this session here, this portion of Scripture. Of course, in uh, various ways, we've revealed some practical application. You live in sin. That's a cave. That's dark. It's not light. Right? Christ is the way to life. He is the light. That is always available to all while we live. 
the opportunity to follow and believe Christ and be renewed, to be born again, right? All these things, uh, very wonderful to the text. Okay, that'll do.